0: Covert action. Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm your host, Rachel Hu.
1: And I'm Chris Garatha, and we're very happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin, recorded Tuesday evening, November 15th. So we're just going to jump right into it today because we've got a whole lot to talk about. And for all of it, I'm joined by Sean Blackman, the co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Uh, Thanks for having me, Chris. Oh, thanks for being back. You know, I think you and uh, your co-host over there, Jackie Lukman, were one of our some of our first guests on this podcast uh, when Rachel and I started doing it earlier this year. And you know, I remember back to it was right after. Of course, YouTube and so many other networks and platforms took down uh, RT and Sputnik from their, uh, you know, from their services. You couldn't get to any of your stuff on any of those platforms. I mean, just to start out, how have things been going since then?
2: Things have been going well. It was definitely frustrating and disheartening when that happened because really in the blinking of an eye, we were kicked off of all major podcasting platforms and our YouTube page, at least for by any means necessary, was actually still up. But then this woman from the Hill uh, published an article where literally they went to uh, YouTube and uh, another platform, I believe, called Simplecast, where we had switched um, and basically, was like, hey, you know, you got these Russians on your platform, and so we got kicked off of there too. So now we're, um, you know, still up on the, the Sputnik site. We're broadcasting on Rumble and on Odyssey. And honestly, what what got us through that was the support of the listeners, because you know our our community, our listenership, they found us, they they join us every day live on Rumble and stuff like that. So seeing that and seeing how strongly people felt about by any means necessary was very uh, uh, comforting in that time, you know, realizing just just what it meant to people. And people were saying, well, I, you know, I don't have access to my favorite uh, radio show and things like that. And so, you know, I think it just goes to show not only how important um, alternative uh, media is, I, uh, uh, I think it also shows how these Tech companies are, are basically working in cahoots with the state to suppress political dissent. But see that that aspect of it doesn't come up because since Sputnik is Russian media, well, you know we're supposedly the the propaganda, right? And so we're not we're not beholden to to any of that. And so, a, a, as frustrating as it has been, um, uh, our community and our listeners have been our greatest strength and certainly uh, supporters and a regular guest like you, Chris, who who are a big part of our support as well.
1: Well, you know, I don't say it just because I am on weekly, but folks can catch me uh, every Tuesday talking about tech on by any means necessary, but uh, honestly check in every day. I try to listen uh, as much as I can when I'm at work to, to keep up, appreciate all the work that you and Jackie are doing and continuing to do to keep that show going and uh, keep things moving on. But speaking of moving on, I mean, it's been a week, but the midterms are kind of still happening, it seems like. There's a lot of races that are, or a number of races that are not called yet. They're very, very close. There's been some drama in Arizona with Carrie Lake, um, something involving Liz Cheney at this point. I mean, it's getting a little wild on Twitter these days, you know, with this direct back and forth with these politicians. But, you know, I'm looking at just the results of these midterms, and even though you know, the New York Times still has it up on their thing, right? They got 50 Democrats in the Senate versus 49 Republicans. And I, you know, I know we're going to talk about Georgia later on. You know, right now we've got 206 Democrats versus uh, 217 Republicans in the House. Still, of course, a number of races to call for the House. But I was particularly interested to see the way some referendums went. Um, There were a number of referendums in red states, especially talking about, uh, you know, the defending the right to abortion. Uh, there were, I think five of them talking about Montana, Kentucky, uh, Michigan, uh, Vermont. And I believe it was California was the last one. Um, talking about defending the right to abortion. I mean, some of those, I mean, Kentucky, Vermont, or I'm sorry, Kentucky and Montana, those are very red States. If you yeah. look at the traditional Democrat Republican left, right narrative, um, But also there were ballot measures about, uh, you know, prohibiting uh, anti-union right to work language in Illinois and a bunch of other stuff. And if we look at the demographics, it was Gen Z that really pulled out for this. I mean, Gen Z came out and I was thinking a lot today about the lifetime that Gen Z has had. For some folks, this is their first time even voting. Maybe they voted in 2020, but some of them are so young that this is their first vote ever. They were born, you know, 9-11 might be the first thing they remember or the aftermath. So they got the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, financial crisis. I mean, Trump, COVID, all of that. And they're coming out in mass and saying, yes, I live in Montana. I live in Kentucky. I live in Vermont. It doesn't matter. I believe in the right to choose. I believe in the right to a union, whatever it is. I mean, how, how are you seeing all that?
2: Yeah, well, I thought I thought it was noteworthy when we saw how much how young people turned out to uh, uh, support these referendums and and to get them passed. And when I thought about it, I thought about if we go back to two years ago in 2020, during the uh, George Floyd rebellions here in the U.S., uh, at least in my experience, it was uh, largely a lot of Gen Z people, a lot of young people who were out in the streets who were helping to, to lead this, this struggle and who who were uh, uh, really helped sort of uh, spurring on this rebellion against racism. And it was a similar thing in the struggle for uh, uh, abortion rights. You also saw it was young people, young women, young LGBTQ folks out in the street uh, uh, demanding this. And so I really feel like it's that generation who really uh, turned out and sort of organized themselves to uh, uh, support these things, which I think says two things. And actually the way I feel about these referendums and how they played out is how I feel about the midterms in general. And that's number one, that this, this aggressive, reactionary, racist, bigoted, right-wing assault on uh, basic democratic rights has been rejected not only by Gen Z, but by the American electorate. But now when you consider that the Democratic Party has refused to codify um, uh, uh, abortion into law, even when they have the power and leverage to do so, a similar deal with with the right to work, not fighting on labor issues and stuff like that, (laughs) what it tells me is that the electorate is more progressive than the political mainstream that of course is under control by these two wings of the ruling class, the Democrats and the Republicans. And I agree with you, Chris, that what these young people have seen in their lifetime, on top of the fact that they were basically born with um, a world of information at their fingertips through technology and through uh, uh, the internet, I think has a, a big impact on their politics and and how they operate politically. And so, I actually and and as organizers and as movement people, I think we should we should take note of that. And I remember even earlier this year, I saw that there was a report from uh, Purdue University that said that in the first three months of this year, uh. Gen Z adults were food insecure, one in three of them, in the first part of this year. And this generation, these were some of the people that were hardest hit by the pandemic because they were laid off. Some of them had to leave school, so they didn't have access to those food services. So we're talking about a generation of young people that has really been through a lot. They've seen a lot. They're not just sitting around making TikToks all day, like like people uh, tend to think. This is a sharp and very aware generation of people that know what's going on. And I think that um, what we've seen in the results and how they turned out in the midterms, I think, is an indication of that.
1: Yeah, and let's just look at some of the, the definitions, right? Because I think there's a lot of confusion. People are like, oh, millennial, Gen Z. I mean, I'm getting to 40 years old. I'm a millennial. I mean, it's, you yeah. know, you wouldn't even, th- like, millennials are solid adults now, but so are some of the older members of Gen Z. This is folks who were born in the mid to late 90s until the early 2010s. Mm. And so, you know, again, all of the things that they have seen, whether, you know, the the fallout of 9-11 or 9-11 itself, again, the Iraq, Afghanistan wars, Libya, Syria, um, just the entire global capitalist instability from the 2008 crash and so much, I am not surprised in any way that, you know, they are struggling and that they are also, you know, struggling, yes, to 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 feed themselves, to get an education, but also struggling as in fighting back, right? Yeah. The one struggle begets the other. And I think that's how we, we need to be looking at this. But it wasn't just young people, right? We can't just mm-hmm. say, well, there's a problem with the older generations. Oh, you know, OK, boomer kind of thing, right? I think that is also something that we need to be avoiding. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of discussion um, in various circles about, oh, did this, you know, did this uh, group of people come out for that candidate, that group of people come out for this candidate? To me, it feels, I mean, interesting to know on a large scale, on a macro scale, who is voting for who, but also seems extremely divisive to me, you know, in Mm -hmm. a sense of, you know, you can't break down unless you look at really a class position not just education, race, gender, but you have to look at a class position too. Who's voting for, let's go back to 2020, Trump versus Biden, or in any of these races, who's voting for Herschel Walker, who's voting for Warnock, right? And again, we will get to Georgia because it's so interesting to me what is happening down there. But looking at a lot of these races, people want to really strip it down demographic by demographic. But what we're seeing overall, to me, is that, as you said, I mean, the people, the electorate are entirely more progressive than the people who are running to supposedly represent us. And I think that is also shown with the dissatisfaction with the amount of money that is going to Ukraine right now, while people in Gen Z and every generation cannot even pay for housing, for food, inflation is still up, all of it. Yeah, definitely. And and I think
2: that the the class Um, aspect of it is is so important, and particularly when we see, once again, that the Democrats patently refuse to push and really fight for um, a a working class program, or rather a program that would be beneficial to the masses of poor working and uh, oppressed people in this country. I mean, look at what happened with with the Build Back Better deal. That was not a revolutionary uh, slate of um, policy, right? This was not something that was going to uh, overturn capitalism or anything like that. Yet and still, it was broadly popular amongst people in the United States. Now, why did it fail? Because of efforts of the Republicans? No, it was because of the right wing of the Democrat Party, the so-called moderates, but when when we understand that the uh, uh, the Democrats themselves are not a left party, they're a center right party, well, then we see that a moderate is nothing but a right winger. And so we're talking about the Joe Manchins and the Kirsten Cinemas of the world who are just two, who are just two uh, of this wing. They get a lot of the spotlight, but it wasn't just them. And so what did Joe Biden and the Democratic Party establishment do? Did they condemn the so-called uh, uh, moderates? Did they uh, uh, try to uh, impact them politically or try to, you know, apply any kind of pressure to try to get it passed? No, they capitulated. They do what they always do. They they capitulated to the right wing of their own party. And then finally, um, Joe Manchin went on Fox News, of all places, to say that he was not going to vote on uh, uh, Bill Back Better. He would not support Bill Back Better, no matter how much they uh, uh, cut it back. So just humiliating uh, <laughs> Joe Biden and the Democratic Party of leadership, and they just let it slide like it's cool. And so w- when we see this response from a poor and working people in this country in terms of what they support, At the ballot box, I think what we're seeing is a deepening conscience about uh, uh, their material conditions, which is easy to see if they just take a look around. Cost of living going up. Cost of uh, uh, housing, food, and everything going up. Wages not going up with it. Wages stagnating, right? Uh, uh, also, uh, you mentioned Ukraine earlier, even though there was this, uh, uh, aggressive campaign, uh, well, frankly, for years now to, to, to demonize Russia and things like that, and to make Ukraine a cause celebre amongst the American people all to help justify the whims of U.S. imperialism. And while people still hold that feeling of sympathy towards Ukraine, what they don't have sympathy for is the price of gas going up. What they don't have sympathy for is just this positively gross amount of money that's going to war and and bloodshed while so many people here need so much. But what I always point out to people is that Consciousness, while it's, you know, obviously it's good and understandable that that's deepening with people, it doesn't organize itself. So people are not going to uh, find themselves in the movement or find themselves in political struggle simply because they have a better understanding of what's happening around them. No, it it is the duty and job of organizers to be active and not only understanding the conditions, but understanding how to. Uh, help people understand sort of the deep systemic root of all these things that are happening and above all else, bring them into an action to where they can fight for all of these things, which is precisely what the Democrats and ruling class politics in the United States refuse to do because these ruling class politics, of course, are in place to protect the interests of the capitalists themselves.
1: That's right and again it just looks like what we've been seeing when we were talking about earlier with Gen Z with millennials but I mean really with all working class people we have seen this movement towards action. You know, it's not just young people who work at Starbucks, right? People right. of all ages are working at Starbucks and people of all ages are unionizing at their Starbucks stores, at their Apple stores, uh all across the country and it's so inspiring to see that. And what do you see from from Joe Biden about Starbucks? Nothing. What do you see from any of these politicians about Starbucks, about Amazon, about any of these, you know, big companies where the workers are in these awful conditions that many of these politicians themselves have either created or exacerbated? The politicians, of course, are saying nothing because the workers aren't going to be giving them those donations and giving it to their, their packs. Right. So, I mean, we're seeing all of this happen. And at the same time, so we've seen a big shift in a sense in consciousness and it played out in a certain way in these elections. But the reality is, uh, I mean, <laughs> the New York Times has this headline that I don't know. It's a kind of ironic. I, it's I don't know if it's still up there, but I looked it up earlier. It says with Republicans close to House majority, next Congress will be divided. I mean, no kidding. No kidding. It's really <laughs> close. Like, yes, Congress is divided. It's it, almost evenly split. Um, and again, we still have some races that have not been called, but so we didn't see the blue wave. We also didn't see the red wave, right? It was gonna be, you know, Rovember, but on the other side, it was gonna be uh, you know, MAGA Vember or something like that. I'm pretty sure I saw that in Truth Social at some point. Um and neither of them really happened. And what that you know tells. Me, and especially with the Democrats really only at this point having flipped one seat in the Senate, was that people don't necessarily trust that politicians are actually going to make the difference that they say they're going to make. That people are really realizing the lesson that, yeah, we get to vote every two or four years, and there can be some important things that come out of those elections, But ultimately, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party in their majorities represent two sides of the same coin. And they have extremes, uh, certainly, especially on the Republican Party and the far right. But when it comes down to, you know, controlling a Congress, I think there were some races I think that were interesting where, you know, big Trump supporters were defeated, but there were other races where they where they won. And so I think we we can't necessarily say that in terms of the candidates themselves, there was that shift. But to me, that's a result of who the candidates are. Uh, and it's a completely unjust election system. Just to try to have to get on a ballot, you need a huge operation.
2: Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, we talk about this all the time on Biden. Is Necessary, about how the, the electoral system in the United States is specifically designed to keep out anyone who is not representing a ruling class party. That is what gives us the uh, duopoly, the Democrats and Republicans that we have. It's not just because they're just such potent uh, uh, political machines necessarily. It's just that, you know, in order to get on ballots, you know, uh, depending on the state, because it's a different process in each state. I mean, it's almost like we have 50 different elections in this country every time. But if, if you don't have the money, if you don't have uh, uh, the the boots on the ground that can actually, you know, uh, do certain things that need to be done, get signatures and stuff like that, well, then you're just out of luck. You know what I mean? And so this is what keeps any alternative uh, view, voice or party from uh, uh, having access to the consciousness of the American people. And that's the way that I think about it, not having access to the consciousness because from everything from the ballots to the debates and uh, uh, things like that, anyone who is outside of that uh, ruling class duopoly is just not allowed because it has to be a contest between these two wings of the capitalist class to ensure that no matter who wins, the capitalist system itself is not in danger. And that's ultimately what all of this is about. And what's been really interesting to me, Chris, about this, I have to say, is we're seeing more now Republicans publicly talking about uh, 2024 and how Trump may be harmful to them. Now, the first person, the first prominent Republican that I saw do this was Paul Ryan. And I mean, he really went in on Trump. He was straight up like, if we nominate Trump in 2024, we will lose. He said Trump hurt us in these uh, uh, elections, and talking about how some Trump candidates simply didn't do well. And this is happening at the same time that we're seeing an ascendant Ron DeSantis, who you know uh, w- won his reelection in my home state of Florida, which you know was completely unsurprising for me. And not long, not that long before uh, Paul Ryan's uh, comments, Donald Trump was uh, giving some commentary to Fox News saying uh, about how Ron DeSantis shouldn't win. So I, I feel like there really may be some smoke in the city uh, with the Republicans as we move towards 2024. And then on the flip side of things, when we talk about the Democrats. We saw Joe Biden and the, the 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 establishment leadership basically celebrating the fact that they didn't get completely slaughtered. And so even though they still very well could lose the house since it wasn't a complete sweep, they're counting it as a W. That's how low the bar is, right? And if that's how low the bar is, then we know that the interest of poor working and oppressed people in the United States are beneath even where that bar is. And so that's why it's so important that we really work to develop and build a mass, working class people's movement across lines of division that will really fight for all of these things that we need so badly because this same ruling class duopoly refuses to do so. And as time goes on, it's becoming more and more blatant that they just have absolutely no intention of addressing uh, a people's condition, but will still continue to badger us and to try to bludgeon us to 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 vote for them, even if they're not offering uh, anything of value to us. And so I really do feel like with how things are unfolding, both in the United States and in the international situation, I think people are starting to grow weary of this this trick bag of this hamster wheel of, uh, uh, elections and they very well, uh, uh, still may, uh, take part in them. They still may, you know, go and vote, but I think people are starting to understand about how, <laughs> you know, w- when they cast these votes, even though they, uh, uh, they- they're doing so in a sense, feeling like they're protecting their own interests. But I think at a certain level, people are understanding that, you know, a, a Democrat getting in office is a victory for that Democrat, but it's not necessarily a victory for those of us out here who continue to be in need and continue to have those needs ignored.
1: Mm, for sure. I mean, I, I started, I was getting a lot of texts this, this time around, more than I've ever gotten from candidates on, I don't know how, but I got on the Democrats, the Republicans, and a whole bunch of like libertarian and independent lists. I don't know how that happened this year, but that was, it was wild. But as soon as election day ended, All the Democrat numbers that had been messaging me started saying, Oh, will you help us door knock or phone call or donate for Warnock? I mean, they immediately turned around and said, Everything's about Georgia now. If we don't win Georgia, then it's all over. It's the end of the world. I'm looking at this and I I don't know, I'm not an expert on Georgia politics, but I'm not sure how it is that this race ended up as close as it was. I mean, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised about anything anymore in politics, especially in electoral politics at this point. But I don't understand how is this, how is this race as close as it was? We are now just a couple weeks away, I think three weeks away now from a runoff election that's going to be happening uh, in Georgia on December 6th. Uh, and it is all get out the vote and raise money now, it, not just in Georgia, but again, across the country. I'm just getting emails as we're sitting here from various lists I'm on saying, will you help donate to to win Georgia for the Democrats? And h- how did we get to this point? What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Chris, I am so
2: fascinated by this Georgia race because Raphael Warnock, in the context of US politics is eminently legitimate. Uh, He was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Uh, He was already a a senator and things like that. Obviously, he's, he's the incumbent. And here he is in a close race with the only person in American politics in worse cognitive decline than Joe Biden himself, Herschel Walker. And it just makes no sense. But I, I actually don't think that the closeness of this race is Warnock's fault. Because we saw something similar in Pennsylvania, didn't we? With John Fetterman and this quack TV doctor. like. I I've just been trying to wrap my head around how these people even got anywhere near this level of legitimacy. And I think it's it's a couple of things that don't necessarily have much to do with the candidates themselves. I think number one, the sort of the the intensity of the the Republican base and of the Trumpist base, I think is, is certainly one aspect of it. But I think also. What we're watching, what we're seeing is the results of years of Democrat Party impotence. You know what I mean? And again, this refusal to develop and fight for a program and platform that will uplift the people who you say are your base. We're seeing those chickens coming home to roost now. And this is, if, for the Democrats, this is like straight up embarrassing. Herschel Walker, Doctor Oz, look at these people, and look at some of these other folks: Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I Donald mean, just Trump. Trump, don't,
0: don't Trump come on. himself.
2: You know what I'm saying? It, it, it's just it, it just shows, I think, so much about um, how we got to where we are in uh, uh, American politics. And really, I, I just think it sort of uh, shows how empty and and, and hollow uh, uh, politics are in this country right now, which leaves the door wide open for this far right assault that we're experiencing. And it's important to say that because what isn't talked about in the mainstream media, especially in in the liberal platforms, is the role that the Democrats played in getting us to where we are. Now, Biden and his administration have struck a very interesting chord in the lead up to this, um, uh, in the, in the lead up to these midterm elections, because if people recall, Biden was making it seem like. Democrats, mainstream Republicans, and independents basically had to build this electoral anti-fascist front to defeat the Trumpists. And Biden even used that word. He even used the word fascism, right? Which I thought was very slick. and, And it really feels like a new version of what we always see. You know, Republicans are the bad guy, even if we're not doing anything for you, you should vote for us because we're not Republican. And that's it. That's what we have to offer, right? But it 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 struck a different tone because it almost felt like a uh, uh almost like a movement sort of thing. Or like I say, almost like a, a united front type of deal to where we're all in this together, right? To to fight uh the Trumpists. But the beautiful part and the convenient part about that for the Democrats is it ignores the role that they played in getting us Trump. It ignores the fact that they sabotaged the one person that could have defeated Trump, Bernie Sanders, not once, but twice. And uh, also we know how, uh, uh, how Hillary Clinton Uh, and I believe we know this through WikiLeaks, about how it was their plan to basically amplify Trump and give him all of this um, airtime, thinking that people would see how outrageous he is and would support them simply because of that. And we see how that worked out. So Democrats and their machinations and the way that they always, always, always will work to sabotage the progressive wing of their own party, how all of that helped give us Donald Trump, which of course set us on the path to where we are right now, where some, you know, bumpkin football player and a TV doctor actually had a shot at being in elected mm-hmm. office in this country.
1: I oh, should add, uh, at least Stefanik from uh, upstate New York to that list as well. Let's not forget yeah. her, uh, you know, in that, in that category there, but, um, A little bit of breaking news coming in as we record, Sean, we have, it looks like Kevin McCarthy will be the Speaker of the House, assuming that the Republicans pick up, I believe at this point, the number is one more seat. That election has happened at this point. Uh, And so really interesting to see that it's McCarthy who will be the Speaker uh Trump apparently was encouraging his allies to back McCarthy, even though Andy Biggs of Arizona, who is formerly the chairman of the ha- uh House Freedom caucus in the house, uh which is extremely pro trump uh said that uh it was you know he would be a long shot uh against McCarthy, so effectively not nothing's over yet, but McCarthy is going to be the Uh, effectively the the house GOP leader. I mean, he's, that's basically it. Um, Interesting move to me for them to pick McCarthy. I think they could have picked somebody possibly a little less controversial, um, you know, even on the Republican side, if they were, because we are also looking at, you know, the fallout from a potential 2024 run for Donald Trump. I'm sorry. We have to talk about it. Um, You know, (laughs) For our audience, we are recording this. It's a little after five o'clock Eastern on Tuesday, the 15th. We know that tonight, as we are speaking, Donald Trump will be announcing potentially his run for 2024. Um, Sean, I'm not going to ask you to guess if he's going to announce or not, but I want to get, you know, because there's a lot of options. He could run for the Republican nomination. He could uh, run as an independent, uh, which I think would be politically just the end of him. Uh, absolutely. Um, although if January 6 wasn't the end of him, then I don't know what, I guess, what could be, but right. he could run as an independent. He could run as a, a Republican. Either way, if he does decide to run, what's, what is your thought on what the next two years looks like then leading up to November, 2024? And I'm not just talking about in the ballot box, because what we saw before 2016 and before 2020 especially were militarized right-wing fascist movements emboldened by people like Trump, like Andy Biggs, like Kevin McCarthy, uh, and all of them, you know, out in the streets, harassing people, beating people, intimidating people, um, you know, doing all sorts of, of, of damage just to our, our world, uh, and that has been increasing, and they haven't gone away since the election. They've actually gotten more and more angry. So, should Donald Trump announce tonight? Either way, Republican, independent, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What's your perspective on on what happens over the next, uh, basically, you know, twenty three months? Well, first of all, I got to say because you, you mentioned you know you know,
2: like the idea of Trump running as an independent. It's so funny you say that because I was just earlier this week I was thinking. And maybe this is just the, the that little bit of chaos agent that maybe we all have in us. And just how I would love to see Trump try to uh, run as some uh, like an independent, like insurgent conservative party, like an America first party or a patriot party or something like that. I just think that would be hilarious. Now, if he wins, maybe be less funny, but you know, but, but either way, the, the, these next two years and what that would look like if Trump announces, I think there would be a feeling amongst people in the country that, uh, the political crisis in the United States would deepen in a number of, of ways, because I feel like, uh, I feel like the average American in a lot of ways kind of feels that. We're in crisis, not just in the U.S., but in terms of climate change, which is an existential threat to the earth itself. I think a lot of people are feeling this kind of impending doom about things in general that is spurred on by uh, these corporate media platforms that often um, that can accurately sort of describe how bad something is, but never really offer solutions, which, you know, just leaves people In a state of despair. And so, like with anything, I think about this from the standpoint of an organizer and as a movement person. And I think about that period after Donald Trump won the presidency. And I'm sure you remember that uh, too, Chris, and about how there was just this uh, uh, upsurge in in political activity because people were so um, galled by the idea of having Trump as the president. You know, I've, you know, I've been in meetings, um, you know, with organizations like the Answer Coalition here in DC, and man, those meetings, I mean, p- people were hanging from the rafters. People were packed into these meetings because they wanted to do something about Trump. Every organization left of the Democratic Party saw uh, a huge increase in interest in membership and things like that, because people fundamentally felt this this need to get involved to try to change something, because they they went and in their mind they went and did their part at the ballot box, so now they feel like they got to do something else. And so, a part of me feels like we may see a kind of similar trend in the next two years. You know, in terms of the intensity of it, it it's hard to say, but when we consider these overarching issues of the internal situation, the issues of war, particularly in Ukraine, and certainly the US is uh, trying to intensify its new Cold War against Beijing as well. With uh, climate change, as I was saying before, I think people are going to feel this uh, a deep need to uh, uh, really get active in a way that maybe they, they hadn't before. Because even if they still had some kind of faith in the Democratic Party, I think they'll see that they will have to be engaged in some kind of political action outside of the voting booth. And so that's where we come in as organizers. When we understand this and see this happening, we have to be able to uh, capture that energy and direct it in a a, a focused path that is going to bring about the change we want to see in the U.S. And, And, you know, I've been reading this book that was just released called uh, Socialist Reconstruction in the United States. And I feel like as we continue to see the popularity of socialism in the United States and how the stigma around concepts like socialism, like communism, like, uh, you know, revolutionary politics begins to lift a little bit by a little bit, which is very noteworthy in a country as profoundly anti-communist as the United States, I think we'll be seeing more and more people address themselves to the question of capitalism itself, how it operates, and how it plays a direct role in the suffering, oppression, and exploitation of people, not just in this country, but around the world. And then I think we'll really see an effort in an instance where people are asking themselves, where clearly this system and this society is not serving us and indeed is designed to go against our interests. Therefore, we need to build a new society with a new system where people's needs are the core priority instead of the protection of profits, which is what we live under right now. So I'm not predicting a revolutionary crisis here in the United States. That's not something that any serious person uh, would or could do, really. But uh, uh, understanding conditions being as they are, I do think it presents a great opportunity to uh, uh, introduce and deepen understanding of these ideas, so that we can really push towards a better society where people can have access to the things they need.
1: I will say, we—if uh, you, you know—that book you mentioned, Socialist Reconstruction, we had one of the uh, major contributors to it, Brian Becker, on this show. Last month, it was our October 26th show. It was a great conversation about, you know, what is the deep state and the role of the state? So encourage our listeners, go back and check out that episode. And if you like that episode, go check out the book Socialist Reconstruction as well. Uh, Love having authors uh, talk about their their books on this uh, show too. You know, when I'm thinking about the next two years of a potential Trump campaign. Uh, I mean, first of all, I, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine today who's a union organizer. He was out for the Democrats, like hardcore. He just got home getting some rest. And he says, you know, I would love it if you ran as an independent and just split that right wing vote up. And then we won't have to worry that much next year. And he was Joe's a joke, of course. But, you know, I was like, I mean, if he ran as an independent, if he tried to pull a Ross Perot, that's basically what it would be. He'd be splitting the, the Republican vote. Um, but I I, I, also, I think about, as you say, building movements. And, you know, we have so many significant movements happening at the same time in the U.S. right now that are also in solidarity with movements all across the country, the anti-war movement, because everybody on this planet will be affected by a nuclear war. Everybody practically will be affected by uh, an, a strengthened trade war with China or an actual, you know, military war with China. Everyone is impacted by climate change whether you're in the US or not. It's not just a one country issue. So the entire world has been in solidarity with and vice versa but with all these movements happening in the US. And I say that because I think it's going to be time too for these movements, you know, that are going to spring up uh in the case of a Trump 2024 run, you know, to say we need to be Looking internationally as well, we need to be looking at the international solidarity that you know the ultimate destruction of the planet could happen under Trump. It could happen under a Democrat, uh, but it's going to happen unless, as you have said, you know, we get out there and we actually change something for real. you know, I mean, Joe Biden hasn't officially announced he's basically said he's interested, he's thinking about it, you know he hasn't made the official announcement yet, but I think that Effectively, he will be running again unless something very significant changes internally in the Democratic Party where they say, listen, you know, we were you're you don't have the numbers or whatever it is. And I think, you know, he he might take that hint um, and say, OK, I'm not going to run. Maybe, you know, Kamala Harris would say, you know, pick it up or or somebody else. But. I don't see the Democratic Party throwing out a strong candidate for 2024, even if Trump is. You know the the Republican nominee. I mean, they put out Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, and then propped him up, as you said earlier. You explained earlier. We saw it through Wiki through uh WikiLeaks. I mean, it is just the truth of what happened. They propped him up, uh, you know, again thinking that uh, it would you know just embarrass him. But I'm also thinking about you know I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Mike Pence did an interview recently uh, about Donald Trump and about his new book and and all of these things and. He was asked if if Trump should run again, and he didn't get up and say, oh, that guy wanted me dead. That guy was encouraging a mob to go kill me. He said, I think we'll have better choices in the future. And it just shows to me the absolute bankruptcy. I mean, forget, you know, your positions on any issue or another issue. It's the absolute bankruptcy of a system that allows people to be politicians over everything else that they are so separated from the day-to-day lives of their people, of the people that they're supposed to be representing, that in fact, they can just be like, yeah, well, we'll we'll have better choices in the future. I don't want to rock the boat too much because maybe I'm going to be running for president because there is a chance that Mike Pence could also announce, which you know, also, I mean, I think would also be a horrible presidency. I mean, the man believes in gay conversion therapy, that would be, you know, a really extreme, you know, awful presidency, but so I do want to ask you while we're on that theme too, just of of general, you know, democracy, the Supreme Court's can take up this case of Harper v Moore, talks about this uh, independent legislate legislature thing where can the state legislature just decide it doesn't like the results of a of a of an election and just throw it out and say well, here we're going to send our own, you know, slate of electors to Congress, which is something that, you know, Trump was really pushing uh during the 2020 crisis. Um well, I mean, I think it's it's really Symbolic in a sense, a really representative of the general crisis of democracy that we're seeing, I mean, certainly under Trump, you know, with January sixth and all of that, but you know I, you were talking about it earlier, how it's so hard just to get on a ballot. People have no faith in democratic institutions anymore, uh, and I say you know small d democratic, just you know elections, things like that, um even the turnout this time around was not as big as some you know people predicted it would be, but you know, so these movements that you're talking about are gonna be, I think, a crucial part of that re-upping of a real movement for democracy, uh, you know, in the United States, right? When we when we look at what we're facing in terms of Harper v. Moore and other, you know, things that the Supreme Court is going to hear, when we look at, you know, these challenges to uh people's right to just cast a ballot, um, you know, I think people lose faith in the idea of democracy, uh, or our, our uh, ability to maintain that democracy, but I don't think we should lose faith in it. I think we need to continue fighting for it. And that's part of what we're doing here at covert action. I know it's part of what you're doing and your work in DC at by any means necessary and, and elsewhere organizations like the answer coalition, which you mentioned earlier, and so many of our listeners are doing that. So I guess as we go into the unknown, Sean, Uh, As the future always is, what are your uh, what are your parting thoughts for us on, you know, building these movements and defending and really strengthening democracy?
2: Yeah, and and first I want to say on the point of, uh, of Moore v. Harper, this is directly connected to what I was saying earlier about how the right wing program was rejected by the U.S. electorate, Right even with these gerrymandered districts and stuff like that, they still weren't able to have this red wave, right? And see, the right wing in the US knows it's unpopular. It knows its program is unpopular. And so what do they do? They're going after the entire concept of one person, one vote the fundamental uh, uh, ideology, at least what we're told in terms of how uh, voting works in the US, I mean, we know that it, it's you know not quite that, but uh, uh, in terms of how people think of it, they're going directly after it. And that's what more v. Harper is about. Since they know that um, they won't be able to push their program with things as is, well, then they'll just create a situation where they can just basically reject any uh, uh, decision or election outcome that they don't like. And so when we talk about the role of social movements in pushing democracies, and really, I just thought about this. It's just so funny because the United States is always uh, uh, bragging about the supposed quality of its own democracy. It holds itself up as uh, a shining city on a hill, a beacon, a paragon of upright nationhood. Uh, Of democracy in the world as opposed to the big, mean, nasty, uh, authoritarian country. You know what I mean? But we're watching the tortured democracy of the United States deteriorate in real time, right? And so that is where the social movements come in, understanding that the system as constructed is not for them and it is not built for their benefit. I'm of the opinion, precisely because of what you mentioned a moment ago about the potential of nuclear war uh, uh, with the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and China, I am of the opinion that the ruling class, the capitalists, are absolutely 100 percent willing to push us into nuclear oblivion just to be able to hold on to power for that much longer. That's the lunacy of uh, the capitalist class and of this system itself. They're willing to blow up a planet that they live on, right? And so I actually, I truly believe that the people's movement is humanity's last hope. That's not an exaggeration because the stakes are just that high with war, with the climate, with wages, with housing, with food, with clean water, with all of these things. And so we see very clearly, and I believe more and more people are seeing very clearly, that this uh, uh, political system, this electoral system in the United States that we're told our whole life is the greatest example of democracy the world has ever known. More and more people are seeing that for the farce that it is. And so what that means is particularly when we have this, you know, vicious, aggressive right wing and a center right in the Democrats that refuse to fight, well, then that means it's up to us to fight. If we want to snatch humanity back from the brink of oblivion, if we want to create a system that is based on fulfilling people's needs, if we want to enjoy fraternal relations, and friendship with other countries instead of uh, uh, bludgeoning them and uh, uh, using the dollar and military and economic and political might to bludgeon people into submission. If we want to do that, then we literally will have to build the movement and carry through the struggle to make it happen. And so I feel that the, the social movements, the people's movements will be crucially important in these next two years and moving forward in terms of not only what happens in the United States, but what happens all across this earth.
1: Very well said, Sean, thank you so much. Uh, We are out of time and you have been extremely generous with yours. We have been joined by Sean Blackman, co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. We hope everyone tunes in uh, if you enjoyed this show. Sean, thanks again for coming on.
2: Thank you, Chris. Really enjoyed it.
1: Before we go, we have a very special announcement for everyone and especially those in the New York City area. On Thursday, December 1st at 5:30 p.m. Eastern, Covert Action is hosting Pushback Against Empire, a holiday party and fundraiser. It's going to be located at the People's Forum, an amazing space and movement incubator on West 37th Street. Some of our speakers will include Ben Norton, Katie Halper, Steven Donzinger, Gloria Lariva, John Kiriaku, Eva Bartlett, Ray McGovern, Ashley Gajovic, Randy Credico, John Parker, Jeremy Kuzmarov, and many more. Rachel and I will both also be there. If you want to get more information, go to covertactionmagazine.com and just click the graphic that says pushback against Empire to get more information as well as your ticket and to RSVP also to watch online. That information is coming soon. So again, go to CovertActionMagazine.com, click on the graphic for pushback against Empire.
0: You're listening to Covert Action Bulletin, the official show and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. And before we go, I do want to remind folks that if you like what you heard today and you want to support independent journalism, because voices like these are so important to make sure that we get the truth out, that we continue to talk about what's important, regardless of what the algorithms say we can talk about. I want you to go to patreon.com backslash covert action magazine become a patron to get early access and exclusive content if you're not a patron be sure to subscribe it's really something that can help continue to keep this show going but either way we are out of all out of time for today thanks for listening to covert action bulletin Over action